and a very warm welcome to Future Curious, the podcast from Nesta where we explore bold ideas which can change the world for good. Uh, the topic of this episode is science fiction. More specifically, can sci-fi affect the way we think about the future? Uh, how we can shape our future and the technologies we develop and the decisions we make. It's the topic of Nesta's first Future Fest Late event here at the vaults deep under London's Waterloo Station, featuring Professor of Theoretical Physics, broadcaster and author of new science fiction novel Sunfall, Jim Al-Khalili. And I'm very pleased to say that Jim joins us now along with Celia Hannon, Nesta's Director of Futures. Jim, Celia, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Pleasure. Pleasure. Um, so sci-fi has become a massively popular literary phenomenon, uh, much more so than actually pure science, I, I'm sure you might agree. So what do you think both of you is the, the secret of its appeal? Uh, I think science fiction as a genre is no different than any other fiction. It's an imagined world. Um, the appeal with science fiction, I think, is that it allows us to imagine worlds that we don't have to hold ourselves accountable to. You know, if, if, you, if, you're, if you're writing about relationships, you're writing about people within the world that we inhabit, you sort of, you follow certain rules, you know, that people wouldn't do that or they wouldn't live like life like this. And, uh, with science fiction, there seems to be no rules about what sort of imagined world you can be. Now, of course, science fiction varies from, you know, hard sci-fi, which is near future, all the way to sort of the, the, the utter outlandish fantasy. Absolutely, and, and I think it, it is interesting to see how it's moved from the margins to the mainstream, because that, that has happened over recent years. And part of it might be about escapism, because we are we are living in difficult times, uncertain times, and sometimes almost the more apocalyptic the science fiction, there's something almost comforting about that idea. Um, but I think, to, to Jim's point, there's this idea that actually science fiction is a great saying about how it can domesticate the incredible that actually takes mm. things which are really far out of our reach conceptually and brings them into our daily lives and makes us think about what it would be like to live with this technology for example and that that's a really powerful tool jim sunfall is your first sci-fi novel um what drew you to sci-fi after a, a lifelong career in science fact? <laughs> um, it would be nice to think that I made a conscious decision to find a new way of communicating science to a wider audience, but it wasn't like that. I've, I've always been interested in sci-fi. I mean, I grew up reading the, the classic Arthur C. Clarke, but also the, sort of the thrillers, the, the Stephen King, Michael Crichton, but I'd never really sort of seriously contemplated writing fiction. It was really more sort of more an accident. I'd finished writing my uh, a, a non-fiction popular science book, um, Life on the Edge, on a, a new area of quantum biology. And um, and my publisher said, what's next? <laughs> and I said, well, I've sort of got every, everything off my chest that I wanted to write about. You know, maybe I'll try my hand at fiction. And that was it. You know, they said, oh, right. Well, maybe we, you know, we should set you up with our sci-fi. You know, but I said, it'll have to be science fiction, obviously. They set me up with a science fiction editor, and, and that was it. So once that seed was planted, I thought, what, well, I'd better think about this more seriously. And I'm, I'm sort of I'm glad I did. Well, Sunfall is, is set amid a natural disaster um, in, in lots of ways, but, but actually not one that many of us would, would know about. It's this collapse of the magnetosphere. Mm. Could you explain what that is well yes i mean the the and and i have to say this is not an entirely original 
concept. There, are, there is a quite awful Hollywood movie, The Core, which uh, has the same theme, but you know, I didn't copy from that. Uh, the Earth is like a giant magnet. I mean, that's why a, a compass works. Uh, uh, and every few hundred thousand years, this magnet of the Earth, which, which is generated from the liquid metal core inside the, the center of the Earth, flowing around. It generates electric and magnetic fields in a rather complicated way that we're only just starting to understand. Every few hundred thousand years, that flips over. So the magnetic north becomes the magnetic south. Uh, if and when that happens, our compass needles will point, point in the opposite direction. But other than that, it shouldn't affect us. Um, and we're overdue a flip, as it's called. It's, there hasn't been one for three quarters of a million years. We know from the geological records that it's about time something happened. So the premise of the book is that a flip is taking place, but in fact, something's gone wrong, and the magnetic field, rather than flipping round and, and just going back to normal, it's dying. Uh, and this is what we believe happened to Mars. Uh, scientists believe that Mars, billions of years ago, was very much like the Earth. It probably had an, an atmosphere, it had a magnetic field, it could have even therefore harbored life. Uh, the the um, environment there was much more amenable to, to, to life. But for reasons we don't understand, its magnetic field died. And once the magnetic field dies, this is the bubble wrap that, that's, that surrounds and protects a planet from radiation from space, then it's exposed. And, and particles, cosmic rays, uh, and particles from the sun would strip away the atmosphere because there's no magnetic field to deflect them. And, and therefore would destroy all life. So that's the premise of the book. The Earth's magnetic field is dying, and, we, and so will all life on Earth, unless we can do something about it. Wow, so pretty dystopian there. Pretty, pretty dystopian. <laughs> why, why do you think sci-fi relies so heavily on the dystopian future? The, the sense of peril, the sense of menace. There are two types of science fiction. There's the science fiction where science itself, or the misuse of science, is what threatens humanity. And then there's the other where science comes to the rescue, which is what I've tried to do. So it's the o in the opposite way to someone like Michael Crichton, you know, you think about Jurassic Park or Westworld or um, uh, The Prey was one of his books where nanotech, nanorobots go on the rampage. So for him, science is the baddie. I wanted science to be the goodie that, that is without which we can't rescue humanity. Really interesting. Celia, it kind of gets us on to what Future Fest is all about in lots of ways, this kind of like uh, trying to imagine futures and how that affects how we believe the future will be and how we can actually uh, perhaps influence, individually influence our futures. Uh, tell us more about, about that. W w why does Nesta do this sort of future imagining event? Well, th there is this kind of inexorable drift towards dystopianism in, in futures and in sci-fi because it's frankly, it's more entertaining, right? So um, I think Future Fest is almost deliberately positioning itself as a bit of a counter to those kinds of narratives. Yes, they, they've got a place and they're trem tremendously entertaining, but they can also engender a bit of a feeling of fatalism amongst people if you get too much of that culturally. Um, so Future Futurefest actually kind of going back to its roots when it was um, set up in 2013 it was the wake of the financial crisis um, there was a lot of questioning about whether or not experts were any use when it came to thinking about the future um, and so Futurefest was deliberately sort of saying actually you know there are alternative visions there are alternative possibilities alternative worlds what could those look like um, and so thinking about where we are now so four editions later um, reached about 11,000 
thousand people i think what what we're still trying to do and actually is actually more urgent now given the sense of stagnation and um the bleakness which accompanies a lot of the the kind of conversations about climate or even politics is is still try try to open up those those possibilities which is one of the things i think science fiction can do at its best and I mentioned we're here at Futurefest Late. This is the first Futurefest Late that you've mm-hmm. uh, you've done. Um, tell me more about about the Late and and why you chose this particular theme for the first one. Yeah, so so the Late's were really designed to give people a bit of a, a taste of Futurefest um, throughout the year. So previously we just did the festivals as a big bang, and we we didn't have that ongoing relationship with our audience. And so uh, Late's allow us to do those kind of deeper dives on questions that we know they're thinking about that they're interested in. And so this is a kind of perfect topic, and it's why it's so great to to have Jim talk about his his book with Tamandra because this this highly symbiotic relationship between science fiction and and science fact as you were saying uh, it's never been more apparent kind of culturally in our in our conversation so thinking about how how is that being used for good and for ill and for kind of arguably opening up more productive conversations with the public about where science and technology is going um that that's tremendously interesting for us um from from the perspective of future fest now you head up the futures work at Nesta, as I as I said, and and particularly these methods. Can you explain what Nesta means by these methods, and and what's the relationship between those and and maybe science fiction? Um, so futures methods is a very interesting field. Futures studies, how it's how it's kind of evolved um, all the way back, arguably to kind of oracles and and shamans. It's very um, it's a very kind of nebulous field. Um, but one of the things that's been core and central to futures methods is that its its purpose is to sketch out. Um, plausible preferable and possible worlds um, and so that's I think where the science fiction link comes in because actually um, it's very difficult to get people to project themselves into the future and particularly difficult to get them to engage emotionally with that that vision and storytelling and fiction is a very powerful tool for doing exactly that so you know whether it's Jules Verne or Arthur C. Clarke or you know whoever else, Adolf Huxley, they've been capable of telling stories about the future which people really carry with with them and, and really remember. So um, increasingly, it's it's used um, by futures practitioners to um, to tell different way different stories about the future and get people to uh, engage with the direction of technological or scientific developments. And do people have you found that people really do engage? Um, when they when they are used when those methods are used to to, to kind of as a conduit to being yeah. plugged into science. Well, I'll, g- I'll give you a, a tangible example. So something which I'm sure Jim's spoken to you know, a number of interviewees about, which is antimicrobial resistance. So Nesta runs this big challenge prize called the Longitude Prize, which is um, about trying to tackle antimicrobial resistance. And again, this is something people find really hard to kind of connect with. What will this mean for me? Um, so when we launched the prize, we also launched it with um, a set of science fiction stories about a kind of post-antibiotic future. So what will it look like actually in terms of you know, an everyday routine operation for you um, in a world where antibiotics don't work anymore? And so that's a, if that was a way of making it feel much more immediate, much more urgent to people. Interesting. Celia mentioned uh, plausible and preferable um, uh, technologies and, and futures there, Jim. 
the science and technologies that you write about in Sunfall are, are a mixture of current uh, mm. and imagined tech. Um, and you go into everything from liquid retinal implants to urban skies full of uh, taxi drones. And some of those things we can very happily imagine now because they're mm. almost on our doorstep. Um, which are the more speculative areas of science that you're most excited by that, and or fearful about uh, that you mention in the book? Well, I think probably the overarching area of science that's coming at us very, very quickly is artificial intelligence. Uh, and uh, And I think that is something that's wider society are nervous about either because they've watched too many terminator like movies you know and the robots taking over the world or more mundanely more immediately they're concerned about their jobs you know because you know ais and robotics and automations coming in is going to be able to do tasks that we do in a sense that has happened throughout history that we, we we've always had you know machines that you know all the from, from you know going back to the industrial revolution and before um, so the machines always can, can, can replace humans and, and, and in a sense we find new jobs to do. But people are concerned about AI and, and, and in the book I've tried to imagine how far we'll have gone down the road 20 odd years from now. In the book the story is set in 2041 and I think if you think that we've only had the internet and the World Wide Web for 25-30 years the same time in the future, I think artificial intelligence is going to transform our lives even more than the Internet and the World Wide Web in ways that we can't possibly imagine. But it need not be a bad thing. It, 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 just, it will be integrated in our world. And what I've tried to do in some fall is to try and, you know, it's not the main part of the story. But, you know, the effects of climate change, the fact that AIs run cities and so on is a backdrop. So, so a lot of the technology that I've put into the story is stuff that I really believe is the way the world will look in 2041. Um, incidentally, listener, you might be hearing some very conventional technologies in the background <laughs> at the moment. That's a combination of us setting the scene for our Future Fest late uh, uh, event uh, and, and also the, uh, uh, the trains above us coming into and out of Waterloo Station. But we are Driven by humans. Driven by humans, good old-fashioned humans. Why was it important to include both conventional and imagined science and tech in your book then well for me it's 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 sort of the same thing i'm there's nothing in in the science in the story that i i i i would say breaks not as far as breaks laws of physics but nothing that isn't in principle possible some things i think are I, I'll, I'll bet more money on coming about others Maybe less likely, but still feasible. So, you know, you know, a, a lot of the the the, the storyline is is based on how we make use of dark matter, exotic material that we know exists out in the universe. We know it's there. We still don't know what it's made of, but we have various candidate particles that it's made of. And I speculate that by 2041, we've discovered what it's made of, and we can make these particles, and we can create beams of dark matter. So, that's the speculative side. It's not wrong, uh, but we haven't confirmed it yet. <laughs> um, and about the accuracy of things, you know, you 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 have spent your career being hyper accurate about stuff, mm. and then when you go into science fiction, you know, you're given this artistic license, perhaps. Absolutely. You know, um, how important is it to be? Uh, 
accurate in the science you use in when writing science fiction? And do you get frustrated when people aren't? Uh, it it really depends. You know, when when I go and watch the latest Marvel movie, I don't walk out in disgust because Spider-Man's broken the laws of physics. You know, you you suspend your disbelief because it's fantasy. I can imagine you doing that. You see, that's uh, going well, off in a half game. No, 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 no. I I I know a lot of colleagues of mine who who do get really bothered by the wrong stuff. I mean, there's things like, you know, noise in space in the vacuum, you shouldn't be able to hear it. There are simple things you should get right. But I don't get too hung up. I mean, when it's talking about science fiction, the clue's in the word fiction, right? So it's meant to be a make-believe imagined world. But it de depends, you know, if you're watching Game of Thrones or you're watching um, um, uh, um, a Marvel movie, then fine, or th there's th there are no rules that you have to obey. If it's hard sci-fi like this, and I, you know, look to people like Arthur C. Clarke, who who most influenced me, then yeah, I try and get the science right because I think it's it's important. In fact, I I would take pride if I could do the sort of thing that people like Arthur C. Clarke did, and actually, mm. their imagined future comes true a generation later. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> well, absolutely, and I mean, I I, I guess you know, Nestor has used Celia science fiction in in a, a variety of different ways in in this precise context. Tell me about how you've done that and how Nestor has done that in terms of looking at near future and what things might happen? Um, so I talked a bit about infectious futures, which is the antimicrobial existence uh, example, but I also think um, we've we've explored the question of diversity in science fiction because there has this, been this critique, I guess, of, of the genre that um, it's dominated by a particular worldview, you know, perhaps white men, and um, actually that's changed hugely over recent years. Um, you're seeing um, the big awards like Arthur C. Clarke Award and the Kitchies really rewarding and recognising different strands of science fiction, which I think is really exciting. Um, there's Afrofuturism, you know, science fiction is having a, a boom in China as well. Um, so a really exciting time from that perspective. And one of the things that we did with, with Dot Everyone was to, um, to look at um, the perspective of women when it comes to telling stories uh, about invention and science and technology. So we did a, a collection called Women Invent the Future where we featured a number of leading uh, female sci-fi authors who were looking at different aspects of scientific invention and, and how they might evolve in the future. Because actually, and this is a really important f sort of facet of future studies as a whole, telling stories about the future isn't isn't value neutral right where we're kind of bringing a world view to that and so the more perspectives you have on what that future look, looks like um the better the conversation is arguably and, and should sci-fi aim to make predictions mm. per se about our future I mean, actual predictions about our future so I, I mean, I really agree with Jim that it's not the job of science fiction to be accurate, right? Uh, that, that's, you know, that's the job of scientists, yes. fortunately. Um, but, uh, and in fact, you know, Jim was talking about, again, Arthur C. Clarke, and he's got that wonderful quote about how any sufficiently advanced technology should be indistinguishable from magic. magic yeah. um, and I think there is uh, a very a very kind of um, short gap between what is possible now and what could be possible and so science fiction is brilliant at kind of bridging that gap and saying well look we don't quite know how it's going to be done but it could be possible um, and so I think that's a fantastically sort of valuable role to play so I think the kind of accuracy piece is is less important. Jim in a world where 
so much of the development in science and technology is concentrated uh, in the hands of relatively few people. It, this does become an incredibly important thing about how we reflect mm. uh, diversity. And, and I suppose the role of sci-fi almost as a democratizing force for good. Yes, and it has had that. I mean, there have been a lot of science fiction writers throughout you know, the 20th century who've really seen it not just as a way of imagining a fantastical world full of robots and advanced wonders of science, but also as a, as a, a way of getting across quite, quite powerful ethical and moral arguments. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it opens itself, it's, it's really sort of probably a bit more than any other genre yes, in fiction. Yeah, and I think it's sort of flowing both ways in a way, which is really fascinating at the moment. So, you, you know, Margaret Atwood, of course, who has such a tremendously influential role in the genre, but when you, you saw the Me Too protests and you saw a lot of women wearing um, the hand, Handmaid's Tale outfits, right, because they were reflecting back kind of culturally what was happening, um, the conversation, and taking their cues and their tropes from science fiction. And I think that kind of relevance, even though that was written decades ago, um, is is fascinating and it does show kind of how alive it is as a genre and how much it can connect with social movements at the moment. And creativity and art uh, and to some extent filmmaking has brought us or certainly propelled some imagined futures and mm. products and things into the real world and you know we've seen that from 007 movies james bond movies and star trek star trek <laughs> yeah, as yeah, well yeah. you know brought us the mobile phone i guess i, yeah. I wanted to just um ask both of you uh, uh, to sort of round us off um what your what your favorite examples are of science that's got things wrong or indeed right uh, into uh, about the future my, my favorite favorite example of where science fiction has got something wrong is in um uh, in Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner movie, opens up with Harrison Ford sitting out in a sort of eating some sort of street food, uh, um, reading a paper. There are flying cars, obviously, you know, going overhead. Uh, this this was set that the original movie was set in the year 2019, right? And here we are, 2019. There are no flying cars, and yet everyone's reading newspapers rather than staring <laughs> right. at smartphones. It just goes to show, you know, prediction is very difficult, particularly about the future. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and I, I, I'm kind of reminded of, um, we, were, we were talking about AI, uh, Brave New World, uh, it's this, this vision where humans are sort of gladly trading away all their um, freedom and their privacy just to feel more comfortable um, and a bit more secure. And of course, people read that and thought, well, we'd, you know, we'd never do that. Right, so um, I think uh, the, the, there was something pretty prescient in that vision. And here we are, look at all that mm. yeah, GDPR <laughs> yeah, exactly. is, is upon us. Uh, it's been a fascinating uh, discussion. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Jim and Celia, for joining me. Um, and if you'd like to find out more about the topics in this and indeed other future curious episodes, visit us at nesta.org.uk forward slash future curious. But for now, from me, Nigel Campbell, thanks very much indeed for listening and goodbye.